Okay, good morning, everyone. My name is Karen Miller. How are we all doing? All right, glad to hear it. Um, if you don't know me, I am Karen Miller. I am on a staff here at COV, and I'm also a part of the teaching team. And it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right, I want to ask, have you ever had a plan? So you had an idea of the direction you were going, and then somewhere along the line, the, pan the plan kind of blew up. Yes, okay, a bunch of you, you're relating, great. All of a sudden, you're going in a different direction. All right, well, I've had this happen many, many times in my life. I can think of relationships that I wanted that ended, jobs I hoped I would get that didn't pan out. I can think of uh, different family dynamics that kind of went sideways and made things weird and difficult, and then loss of loved ones that changed the, just the direction and the course of my life. We're gonna watch a short movie clip from a movie called Family Man. How many of you have seen Family Man? Okay, a few of you. Well, then I will tell you a little bit about it. In the movie, Nicolas Cage plays a very wealthy CEO of a huge company. He thinks he has everything he needs until someone decides he should get a glimpse of a different possible life. So one morning, instead of waking up in his penthouse in Manhattan, New York, he wakes up in New Jersey, lying next to his college girlfriend, now wife of 13 years. And he has two small children and a dog, and he has absolutely no idea what to do with them because he's never been around small children. All right, so we're gonna watch a short movie clip Here's how he finds out what happened. Listen, I'm really sorry about that back in the store. I, I don't want to fight with you. I just sometimes wonder how we ended up here, you know? I mean, back in college, did, did you see us here? Life has thrown us a few surprises, I'll give you that. It really has, hasn't it? <laughs> so if you had to, what would you say was the biggest surprise? Just out of curiosity, I'm just asking. Annie, for one. Surprise, we're pregnant. <laughs> yeah, that must have been. I mean, that, that was, that was a very unexpected moment, but what are you gonna do? I think it turned out all right, don't you? Yeah, I really like Annie. Well, good, Jack, maybe we'll keep her. Yeah, I love her, I love Annie, I love, I'm just, we had a lot of good times, didn't we? Do you remember the place on Charles Street where we used to go? Charles Street? What, in the village? When we were living in Greenwich Village. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, great times. Great place. Why did we ever leave? You can't really raise a kid in an apartment in the village. And then there was a whole trek out to the hospital that didn't help either. You were great. I mean, surviving the heart attack was one thing. You had a heart attack? Hey, Jack, stop that, because I am, I'm still mad at you. Who knows what would happen if you hadn't stepped in at this door? That's why I work for Big Ed. That's why I work for Big Ed. Yeah. So we had a baby, Big Ed had a heart attack. Bought that house and I've been working for him ever since. Sayonara, Wall Street.
All right, so obviously in that movie, Nicolas Cage had a few surprises that took him from one place, right, to way over here. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of a fun movie, but anyway, if you've lived long enough, you've probably had a few surprise moments yourself. Probably not the same ones, but um, some surprise moments, again, where you're moving this direction and something beyond your control happens and now you're over here. And so this morning we want to just explore where is God in all of that? And uh, how should we respond when God takes us through a difficult time or an unexpected detour? Today we'll be looking at Acts 27 where Paul's journey to Rome does not go according to plan, as we just heard, and we'll see how Paul's unwavering faith allows him to respond with trust in God and grace towards others. All right, before we dive into today's passage though, we are gonna take a look back. Over two years has passed since Paul was first arrested by Roman soldiers in Jerusalem. Jewish leaders had falsely accused Paul of being a ringleader, inciting riots, and showing disrespect to the Jewish temple. They demanded his death, but Paul's Roman citizenship required Roman officials to carefully follow Roman law and provide protection and a fair trial. We've heard about how Paul's nephew uncovered a plot right to ambush and kill Paul, and it was because of that that the Roman commander in charge had Paul move from Jerusalem under heavy guard to Caesarea, where he now resides. And we've heard over the last couple of weeks, right, that Paul appeared in court first before Governor Felix, then Governor Festus for two years, and then last week we heard that he appeared before King Agrippa. But through that whole time, the Jews were not able to substantiate their accusations. Paul invoked his right as a Roman citizen and requested to appear before the Emperor Caesar's highest Roman court in Rome itself. And last week, we heard Paul's testimony to King Agrippa and Festus. And here's what they said at the end. This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment, Agrippa said to Festus. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But he did appeal to Caesar, and so he is going to Rome, and that's where we pick up this morning, starting with verse one. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Andromidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now the word Lee comes up a lot in this passage, so just so you know, Lee means the sheltered side of the island. So the side of the island sheltered from the winds, because you're gonna hear it a lot. Okay, so far, I mean, Paul is going, he is a prisoner going to Rome, but so far things are kind of going according to plan. The winds were against them, so they did have to alter course. And if you look at the map, you can see that they would have normally sailed on the south side of Cyprus, which is the island on the right there, but instead they had to sort of go around and stay closer to shore. 
But throughout this first part of the journey, the cool thing about this is we see God providing many graces. Okay, grace one. Paul was allowed to travel with both Luke and Aristarchus. This is the fourth time in Acts that Luke the physician and the author of the book of Acts includes himself in the narrative by using the pronoun we. It was thought that Paul, an educated Roman citizen, would have uh, been allowed a personal physician on this journey. And Aristarchus, I'm sure you all remember him, right? He's found in Acts 19.29, Colossians 4.10, and Philemon 24. Uh, could have been a member of Paul's missionary team, and at this point it's thought that he was either a fellow prisoner or acting as a servant of Paul. Regardless, Paul had two good companions with him on this journey, and that must have been a tremendous comfort. Okay, second grace. The officer in charge of Paul, Julius the Centurion, shows kindness to Paul, and later we're going to see that Julius actually saves Paul's life. Okay, third grace, Julius allows Paul to see his friends in Sidon. And these friends supplied Paul with his needs. Too often, when we're going through a hard time, we focus on the negative. And sometimes we miss God's grace in the middle of it. So this is our first principle. God provides graces as we endure hardships. Okay, many of you know that on January 22nd, I went to Yosemite traveling as a chaperone for the eighth graders who attend the school where I teach. I'm an eighth grade teacher. We're up at a place called Crane Flat, which is about 2,000 feet above the valley floor. This is January, feet and feet of fresh snow. I had fully intended to plan the week, spending the time with my daughter Naomi, who was also a chaperone on this trip, and just enjoying the beauty of Yosemite in the winter. If you've been, anyone been there in the winter in snow, it's spectacular, right? All right, so, however, I'm an hour into our hike on really the first full day there, and there I am with my hiking group, and we're uh, heading down a much steeper path, and I lose my footing, and I stumble, instantly I go down, and I feel just intense pain, nausea, dizziness, and I think, oh my gosh, this is bad, right? That's the thought. So I'm just down, crumpled on the ground. I look up, and there's this man with his family. And he comes up, and he grabs my hand, and he goes, well, it's probably broken. You might need surgery. And then he just sort of starts uh, navigating people, like, hey, we need some twigs to splinter wrist. We need a sling. We need to wrap it. And turns out this gentleman was an ER doctor, um, which I later discovered, and his name was Calvin, which I remember because Calvin's my son's name. And there is a picture of Dr. ER Calvin, who happened to be out in the middle of absolutely nowhere just at the right time. Yes, so I'm going to write him a letter someday. Anyway, um, so my hiking guide's not that good, so we hike a mile out. I'm in intense pain, and we end up at a deserted parking lot no cell phone reception, no satellite phone reception, and I just sat down and cried. And so he's kind of wandering around, and then Ranger Jonna shows up. And somehow I end up at Ranger Jonna's station, 
And on the board, it says Ranger Jonna, the most highly trained ranger in the National Park Service. I'm going, yes, thank you, God. Right? So then she takes off the twigs, splints my arm properly. She actually puts in a port. She gives me pain meds. And then she mobilizes three ambulance teams that would tear me eventually to the hospital uh, in Sonora. And I, I literally could go on and on about God's graces, including my own husband who drove in traffic four hours to come get me, um, and he was already going through it. His dad had just passed away. And then many of you brought meals, drove me, drove me to the grocery store, helped after my surgery. It was really incredible. So I recently I was telling this story to a nurse who was not a believer. And she said, oh my gosh, you must have been absolutely terrified. And when she said that, I thought, oh my gosh, I should have been terrified. <laughs> but I wasn't. I felt, I felt a, lot, a lot of pain, but I also felt a lot of gratitude, like at each step. I was like, oh, you're a new person. I get to meet you. And uh, it was really an unreal experience. And so I do think that was God's greatest grace, that it was in his spirit in me, helping me to have a heart of gratitude when I should have been terrified. Now, there were days since then that I have been frustrated. I have even been depressed. And each time, God has met me and encouraged me to endure and move forward. Now, there are at least a few of you in here who have had injuries, and the path maybe hasn't been as easy. So hold on because we will see, and we heard, that Paul's journey is gonna get much worse, right? So here's what I do know. I know that we can trust in God's grace and provision during trials. How do you respond when things don't go your way? Not just in tragedy, really, but even in the day-to-day. I know I can be prone to bitterness or fear or self-pity or discouragement or self-effort to make a day better. But what? What if we trusted God when he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And how can we look for God's grace throughout our days and see his loving hands in our lives? It takes some intention. All right, verse five. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Paphilia, we landed at Myra and Lycia. The centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. All right, just a note about the ship found in Alexandria. I kind of like to picture things in my head. Uh, The ship seemed to have been privately owned but leased by the Roman government to deliver grain. And it was one of the ways that the uh, empire was stable. Uh, The grain ships were usually quite large, sometimes in excess of 1,000 tons and over 100 feet in length. So we're not talking a little skipper boat, right? We're talking a huge boat. Verse 7. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off of Canidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lassia. Much time had been lost and the sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. Okay, a couple things here to help you understand. If you look at the map again, you can see that they had to sail on the south side of Crete, which is the island kind of in the middle. 
um, because that would have been more protected from the winds. And that meant it was a much, much longer journey than originally anticipated. And then Luke refers to the Day of Atonement, sometimes also called Yom Kippur. This would have been uh, usually celebrated the end of September, early October, and at this particular time, we're talking about the year AD 59 or 60. One commentator described the problem. Navigation in this part of the Mediterranean was always dangerous after September 14th and was considered impossible after November 11th. You can see their problem. So the journey is taking much longer and is becoming increasingly difficult, which leads to our next principle. God's timing always has purpose. We tend to be a people of instant gratification. We tend to not like delays, and we generally don't like things that don't go according to our plan and our timeline. People want a new job, right? But hiring employers take forever to get back to you or doors close, and you have to start all over. Or you're looking for a house or a new place to live, and nothing's coming up in your price range or in the right location. We may want restored health. I know I do. <laughs> and it's a much longer process than originally anticipated. Maybe you're single and you want to get married. And it's been much longer and you can't find that person you envision you spending the rest of your life with. Some people want to start a family and can't get pregnant. We want to see our loved ones come to Christ and we pray and we pray and we see little or no movement in that direction. The list goes on. We don't understand God's timing, and we wait. But we can wait with frustration and impatience and even fear or hopelessness, or we can wait, surrendering our plans and our timing to God's, trusting that His timing is best. At this point in our story, we don't get God's timing at all. The longer the delays, the more dangerous the journey becomes. How do you respond when things don't happen as quickly as you like? Are you frustrated, bitter, angry, impatient, fear, hopelessness? Right, those are natural responses and I definitely respond that way. But again, what if we lean into God, surrender the timing of things to God and trust he will accomplish his will in his perfect time? Verse 10. Okay, so they're arriving near Fairhaven. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is gonna be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. All right, so they arrive at Fairhaven, kind of like that name. Um, they have a decision to make. Should they winter there, even though the port's not very suitable, or sail on to Phoenix, which is about 80 miles uh, on the west side of the island? There are multiple voices speaking out, right? Paul claims going forward would be disastrous. But remember, Paul is a prisoner. Now we know, right, that he hears from God and he's probably right, but they don't know that. But I love that Paul speaks out here even though no one really listens to him. They will later remember what Paul said and that will give him credibility. So parents in the room, listen up. 
All right, don't be afraid to wisely warn your children and instruct them, even if it seems like they're not listening, even if they're eye-rolling, even if they're angry at you, right? Because they may realize later on that you actually have some wisdom and it will give you some credibility. All right, I digress. All right, so they're trying to make this uh, decision. They do defer to the owner of the, the option, sorry, the opinion of the pilot and the owner. Now the owner, he's the owner of a grain ship, right? So where safety may be important, it is not his top uh, priority. <laughs> and in the end, people make the logical choice, listen to secular wisdom and decide to move on. Now we have read ahead and we do know that in fact proves to be disastrous. So, another question, who do you consult and listen to when you have a decision ahead of you? Do you tend to rely on yourself? I feel like a lot of people do that. Do you rely on cultural wisdom, making pros and cons lists, consulting Google? And none of those are particularly bad, but do you also have a relationship with the Lord that allows you to be surrendered, to pray and be in the word and hear his voice? And do you go, who do you go to for wise, godly counsel? And if you do that, do you listen? Or do you sort of like give them lip service and then do what you want? All right, so here's an aside, because a few people asked me recently, what does it mean to look like to be surrendered to God? All right, I'm gonna give you a quick example. So suppose you're thinking, you're moving, you're moving jobs, you're making a decision. All right, and maybe you have a job in mind, a place in mind, something in mind, right? To mean surrender means praying about it first. Lord, I'd really like to be here, maybe even in this specific time, um, but if you have a better place or this is not your will, then your will be done, not my will. And if those aren't just words, but a true trust that God's plan is actually better, not easier, but better, and you're willing to lay down what you want and open your heart to other options, that's being surrendered. It is very difficult to hear God's voice or even listen to godly counsel if you really just want one thing. So here's the good news, we can surrender to God because we can trust in his timing and in his direction. I know it is better every time than what I think. Verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, okay? Sometimes opportunity is temptation, right? It looks good, so they weighed anchor. They bring up the anchor and they sail along the shore of Crete. But before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now in this account, we see these sailors caught in a hurricane doing everything they know how to do to stay alive. Okay, so first they stopped trying to set course, right? They just allowed the storm to carry them whatever direction it was gonna go. 
And then they had this lifeboat that would have been towed behind the ship and they hoist that aboard. And then they actually tied, I don't know how they did this, trying to picture it, ropes around the ship to hold it together. My picture is sort of like a suitcase that's too full and you wrap the bungee cords around it so it doesn't explode, right? Something like that. Um, and then they had to put down the anchor to slow their voyage so they don't hit those known sandbars off the coast of North Africa. All right, if you look at the map again, you can see that the winds blowing them in the wrong direction would move them towards that land at the bottom is North Africa. Um, and if they hit those sandbars, right, and they get st stuck in a hurricane on a sandbar out in the middle of nowhere, you're toast, right? There's no hope for you, right? The boat's gonna be torn apart and there's no land to swim to for safety. And then as the storm ranged off, they throw out this cargo and an unessential tackle overboard, right? That's to make the ship lighter so it rides higher so it won't hit those sandbars. All right, now this was interesting to me. There are many accounts of people on boats in storms in the Bible. First one was Noah, right? He was in a terrible 40-day storm and God's plan was for him to safely endure in the ark God told him to build. The second one was Jonah, right? But this time the storm was a result of his rebellion. And the answer wasn't to throw cargo overboard or tackle overboard. The answer was to throw Jonah overboard, right? And if you remember the second story, the second he hits the sea, the storm stops and all people on board are safe. All right, so fast forward many hundreds of years and Jesus and his disciples are on a boat in a storm. If you remember, Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat and the disciples are terrified and afraid for their lives. So they wake up Jesus, he rebukes the wind and the sea and everything is calm and they get safely to the other side. Now, you may be thinking, Karen, that's nice, but what is your point? Here's my point. Each storm was unique to the people and the situation at the time. Each response to the storm was also unique. Sometimes we want to put God, right, in this nice need box, right? This happens, do X, this happens, do Y. We may hope we are on the rebuke the sea and everything is calm plan and find ourselves in a hurricane throwing everything overboard plan, not what we hope for. As a wise character Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings once said to Frodo, who was on a perilous journey in a perilous time, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who have lived to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. We don't get to choose the time that we live in, and sometimes we don't get to choose the circumstances. But we serve the God Almighty who loves us, who sees our pain and our situation and will walk us through it one day at a time. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11, it's a little long, but hang in there with me, okay? We do not want you to be informed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. 
He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. I want you to notice a couple things. Paul tells us that one of the purposes of that particular trial was not to rely on himself, but on God who raises the dead. Do you know that we serve a God who brings dead things to life? Dead relationships, dead hopes, people dead in their sins, all ready to be made alive by God's power. That should be exciting. All right, second Paul knew that God was a deliverer. He was certain that God would deliver Paul through or from the storm. When my kids were little, I went through a very difficult time and I was in counseling, and I definitely needed God's deliverance from a whole host of fears and wrong thinking. At that point in my faith, I did not know God as a deliverer. But thankfully, God put some very wise older people in my life who knew that aspect of his character. And I remember doing word studies in my Bible, and I learned everything I could about God's character and what it said about deliverance, and like Paul, when I was humble enough, sometimes I wasn't, to ask for prayer and keep asking for prayer, I could see the clouds parting, sort of figuratively speaking, and I could see God clearly. And truth would dominate my thinking, and there would be peace and hope and joy. We can trust that God will deliver us from or through trials as we rely on him. Verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After all that, all that they did, right, the storm continued and they lost hope. Tim and I were talking and we're just talking about hope is a big deal. And most people just hope it'll work out or hope somehow, you know, where's their hope? Every year it seems like I have at least one middle school student who was 5150 for suicidal depression. On Friday, I had a student write a suicide note in my class. She had no hope. One year, I had five students who were suicidal. The sailors on board that boat couldn't save themselves for their, by their own efforts, and they lost hope. And we know that self-effort doesn't produce salvation or hope or peace or joy. Those are gifts from God. But Paul, who had a lot of mileage with God, could stand secure in a raging storm around him because his hope was in the Lord. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he goes on to say, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, 
These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Do you know we can greatly rejoice in the midst of trials? Because guess what? Our hope isn't just in this life. We can trust and hope that God will work things for our good and his glory in this life, but we also have a hope that there is a life to come where we get to spend eternity with Jesus, and that's a great place to put our hope. So that brings us to our next principle. Faith and hope in God during difficult times is possible more and more as God matures us. The fears I faced in my 20s and my early faith compared to the fears I face now, completely different, much less uh, terrifying. What challenges are you facing right now? And how are you responding? And if you personally aren't facing challenges, who around you is facing a challenge and how are you helping them? How can you help people move from fear to trust by walking alongside them? Verse 21, they had gone a long time without food. Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have been spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. I love Paul's response. He does kind of start with, eh, eh, I told you so, right? When he says, you should have taken my advice. But then his very next words are so gracious, right? He says, I urge you to keep up your courage. So again, parents, leaders in the room, sometimes we warn our kids or even the people we disciple or mentor, and guess what? They don't listen to us. I know that's a shock. And now their lives are more difficult and our lives are more difficult. But look at Paul. Rather than being angry that these guys didn't listen to him, rather than being angry that his life is much more difficult because of their choice, he encourages them and points them to God. Verse 23, last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God. Maybe they don't yet, but he does that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. <laughs> oh, bummer. All right, first notice that Paul begins by describing his relationship to God. He says, the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. On Wednesday nights, we've been talking a lot about not identifying ourselves with what we do, but with whose we are. And Paul knows he's a child of God and God trusts in his heavenly father that he's got him. Whether he lives or dies, God's got him, right? Earlier in Acts 23, 11, God told Paul, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And now in Acts 27, an angel appears to Paul and reiterates God's earlier promise and adds that God will save the lives of all the men on board. Now our takeaway is in the hope that God will send us an angel, although I guess he could, right? Our takeaway from this section is that Paul's trust completely in God's word and God's promises. 
Psalm 145, 13 says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. God is faithful to his promises. In this text, God promises uh, to bring Paul safely to Rome, even though he's currently stuck on a boat in a hurricane and the boat's gonna be destroyed, but he will live. And they're in the middle of the ocean, no idea how they're gonna get to Rome, we'll have to wait for next week, right? But he knows that is true. Um, but because of God's promise to Paul, Paul's able to tell those on board, don't be afraid, keep up your courage, have faith in God. In Isaiah 41.10, it says this, so do not fear, for I am with you, and do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Sometimes I act like I know and serve a distant and personal God who isn't powerful to help me or intervene in my life. But this verse and many others tell me that I serve a God who is very personal, who actively intervenes in my life, who can strengthen me and help me and give me peace and the security I long for. Sometimes, honestly, we're stuck. We're stuck in the storm and we're afraid. And we anxiously just stew in our thoughts and we have no idea how to move from fear to trust. And honestly, sometimes we just wanna complain or be the victim, right, or survive. But Paul knew he wasn't gonna just survive the storm. God had bigger plans for Paul, that he would first witness to all of the men on the board, boat, he also intended for Paul to stand trial before Caesar and bring the Christian faith to the heart of the Roman Empire. No big deal there. And we'll see next week why God had him drift so far, of course, in the storm. God had a plan for the people of Malta, the island where they would run aground. There is always purpose to God's storm. God has bigger plans for us than just to survive. But do we trust in his purposes and his promises? I'm almost done. Sometimes we don't always know God's purposes in our suffering. And honestly, if we don't look to God, it can make us bitter or angry or even cause us to doubt our faith or doubt that God loves us. Or another approach, we can wonder and even ask God, God, what do you want me to learn in this trial? And let me learn it quickly, right? So we can just move on and have a nice life, right? Um, but here is what is always true. Almost every form of suffering can grow our dependence on God and our trust in God. Almost every form of trial can help create compassion and empathy towards those who suffer in similar ways. Almost every form of suffering will reveal sin in our lives and can be used to mature and sanctify us. And oftentimes our suffering like Paul's will open doors for us to witness to God's grace in the middle of hardship. After I broke my wrist on my third part of the ambulance ride, third ambulance on the ride to Sonora Hospital, the MT was asking me what happened. I told him my story. And he looked at me and goes, you know what, I think everything happens for a reason. A lot of people believe that, but at that point I was like, hmm. And so I said, oh, are you a believer? And it turns out he was. Uh, 
And then I started telling him about how um, Mike's dad, my father-in-law, had just passed away the week before. And I wasn't even sure I should go to Yosemite because I wanted to be home with Mike. And he said, well, that's your purpose. You get to go home. And I started to cry. And it was so nice to be at home with Mike that week. God's very gracious. All right, we're gonna end here. I'm gonna ask you to do something a little different. I want you to keep your eyes open while we pray. And there's gonna be a slide up on the screen. Um, and I just kinda want you to take in the sort of big principles as I pray for us. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we are never alone in our trials. And I thank you, God, that it, you can give us eyes to see your grace and your provision at each step of the way. God, I thank you that you are trustworthy and that we can surrender uh, our plans, right? Our timing, our decisions to you, knowing that your plans are better. And God, I thank you that you will always deliver us from trials or through trials, because that's part of your character. And I pray for the people in the room who are going through it right now, that they would understand that you're gonna get them safely to the other side. And I thank you, God, for all the promises in your word that will bring us great comfort during hard times. May we seek and know your promises and trust fully in them by the grace and through the power of your spirit. God, I pray we'd go out of here rejoicing that you are with us no matter what we're going through. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.